with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Nightmare. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. I am Ron Kolick. Your host, the gatekeeper around the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsink. And nobody is with me tonight. No co-hosts, so it's just me, folks. Anyways, joining me today, speaking about real people, is uh, somebody who is highly recommended to me by Willie Haskell. And he is a paranormal researcher, Mr. Andy Kitt. Hello. Welcome, Andy. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. So, Andy, tell us a little bit about how you get involved in the paranormal uh, and, uh, you know, what you do exactly. Okay. um, First off, uh, I got involved in the paranormal. My father passed away back in uh, 2007. And uh, at the time, I was a working artist. So uh, I was like, I'm one of six kids. uh, So I had the time to help my mother settle into living by herself. And uh, so I, I did that for about six weeks. And during those six weeks, uh, I became very convinced that my father, who had recently passed, was trying to send us messages. Uh, I, I, I mean, the evidence I'm not necessarily, certainly at the time, wasn't necessarily a believer, but uh, it was tough. Uh, there was no single, well, there were a couple single incidents, but by and large, it was just the sheer volume of weird incidents that had special meaning uh, sort of swayed me. So when I got back to, uh, this all like, happened in like Syracuse. What, Andy, what, 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 you know, what kind of swayed you? What, you know, I mean, like you said, it was, it wasn't one thing, it was a, a series of things. So literally hundreds of them. Uh, so, uh, yeah, for example, a, uh, examples that would... uh, one of them is uh, my mother always sleeps with her cell phone and, uh, I mean, she leaves it on her nightstand because even when I was there, she was worried somebody was going to break in. So, you know, I mean, yeah. she's 90 now, but uh, she was mm-hmm. 70 something at the time. Uh, but uh, she always slept with her phone. Uh, she gets up in the morning and picks up her cell phone, except it's not there. Uh, we walk around the house. Uh, we figure out that, you know, if we call the thing, we can hear where it is. And it turned out to be in the living room in the corner on a night on a end table. Uh, sitting on top of my father's photograph, the photograph we were getting ready to use for the obituary. Oh, well. You know? and like I say, it's, maybe she did that on her own. Sleptwalk, I don't know, even though she has no history of sleepwalking. Mm-hmm. But like I say, the, the meaning was clear. Another cell phone incident is, uh, uh, this was several weeks later, we're going through my father's stuff, trying to figure out uh, uh, who gets what, and... Uh, uh, so he had a box in my father's bedroom that had a bunch of his stuff in there that we're going to give to like nephews and stuff. So another mm-hmm. habit we got used to is uh, we'd all walk into the kitchen, everybody throw their cell phone on the kitchen table, so we're not walking around with them. And uh, as everybody leaves, everybody picks up their cell phone, and the only one left should have been my mother's, and it wasn't. We had no ideas whose it was, so uh, we sat there and called my mother's cell phone again. It turns out my mother's cell phone is in the box 
of all the stuff to give away that would belong to my father's. And the one mm. that was on the table was my mother's or my father's. And I mean, that's that's two. Imagine hundreds of these things over mm. the period of six weeks. You know, I don't know what the deal with phones is, but uh, my father had a business phone. Uh, he ran a gas station. So there was an extension uh, for the gas station phone to the house that hadn't been used in 20 years, you know, mm -hmm. uh, since cell phones have been around. You know, we used pages and cell phones. We didn't need the in-service line. But uh, at some point, all of a sudden, there was a problem with the telephone service. We call the phone company, and they tell us that somehow the wiring for his extra, for his business line, uh, started interfering with the house line. So they fixed that, and uh, uh, two days later, the phone starts glitching out again. And I mean, it doesn't, it didn't like go off like a switch. It started gradually glitching out. And when it got too bad, call up the phone company again, and the guy, the guy who showed up this time. Wires it back the way the other guy unwired it. You know, it's like, wait a minute. They were just, and then it happened a third time. Same, same situation. It's like, okay, this doesn't even make sense. You know, right? But I mean, these are these are just some of the things. Uh, uh, so one of the most I mean, drastic things is uh, uh, finding the phone in my father's bedroom or the the clock in my father's bedroom would go off at the same time every day. And or every night it'd wake everybody up at like three in the morning. And uh, when I went to to see if maybe it was a brownout or something, I pulled the, the dresser away from the wall, looked at the outlet. The outlet was fried. It couldn't power anything. Hmm. It's like, I, I, you know, I don't know how or why that happened, but there certainly wasn't adequate battery to run six weeks. And uh, yeah, there was no evidence of this. Uh, just weird stuff like that. So you you've got these signs from your father you believe for your from your father do you do you make an attempt to communicate with him do you you try to find out if there's something he wants or or do you, do you just know say that oh he's there and and that's it well when my father was alive uh bear in mind he had a heart attack well he had a heart episode 10 years before he died and we all thought you know the doctor told us we've got 20 he's got 24 hours to live so we all show up in Syracuse to see him die. And it turns out, nope, they were wrong. He lasted another 10 years. <laughs> but 10 years, I spent a lot of time with my father, whenever I could. And uh, he, uh, back then, is uh, especially like the year before he died, I, I want to say this is when the TV show Ghost Hunters started. Oh, yeah. And uh, there was a medium, uh, Jonathan Edward. And these shows would show up at, late at night when you know me and my father would be talking. And he made it very, very, very clear that he did not believe in an afterlife. Hmm. That when you're dead, you're dead. It's a switch. It's over. And uh, after he died, we're very convinced the message he's trying to, to, to give to us all was that, nope, he was wrong. <laughs> you do survive. Oh, and, wow. And the funny thing is, once I got back to New, New Hampshire, uh, I started uh, Seacoast Paranormal, which uh, mostly because I just didn't want to drive. Uh, there weren't any like ghost hunting groups in New Hampshire. You had to go to Boston or something to, to meet up with people who want to talk on the subject. So uh, I started a group in New Hampshire uh, to have those conversations. And one of the first things uh, I tried to get everybody involved with was uh, EVP. And uh, I started doing some EV electronic voice phenomena experiments. And uh, the first voice, I, my, bear in mind, my father looked and sounded very much like Charles Bronson. He is a very very distinctive voice. 
So here I am doing EVP, and I actually got his voice. So that oh, wow. was the real hooker. When that happened, it's like, okay, you know. So. Was, but, was your mother alive at this time? My mother is still alive. She's 90-something, 90. So did, did you, I mean, did you ever play that voice for her? The, see no. No? Hell, heck no. Why not? Uh, no, no, she just, uh, she's been with this guy for, geez, it's got to be 60-something years. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm not going to, I mean, I don't, yeah, no, that did not seem like that would be a good idea. I mean, if anything, it would show her that perhaps there is an afterlife and, and she'll see her husband again. I mean, that would give well, her she hope. Kind of she was kind of convinced of that beforehand. Okay. But uh, having something very direct like that, yeah. uh, first off, she would have been upset. Honestly, I think she would have been upset that my father talked to me instead of her. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, yep. you can really see that being the case. Yeah, but that wasn't the reason I I didn't do it. The reason I didn't do it is, uh, first off, she's in Syracuse. I'm in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. At most, what I would have considered doing is letting her know that it didn't happen. But you know, we just you know the conversation never came up, and I was not gonna shit. You know, mm -hmm. I, the first idea in my head was not, oh my gosh, I gotta tell them I'd let her listen to this. You know, it just mm -hmm. no, that it wasn't part of it wasn't even part of the perception. Uh, especially in the context of the uh, yeah. EVP session, uh, was more in uh, uh, terms of self-enlightenment. What I was doing is asking questions uh, about the afterlife and specific things, and uh, that's what he started to respond to. It's one of the very rare cases when I had EVP respond to direct questions. Uh, in our investigations, uh, uh, normally the EVP we collect are extra voices, people we don't expect to be there. You know, there's three people in a room and we've got four voices and it's right. like they're participating in our conversations, but they almost never answer direct questions. Oh, I see. So I don't know what your own experiences are, but uh, uh, when we investigated, uh, after the first inv real investigation uh, uh, with Seacoast Paranormal, we tried to create like an open-ended group where anybody could participate but we had so much interest that uh, it was hard to do that. Uh, and then we had the real serious problem that a lot of people were more interested in ghost hunting as some sort of like Disneyland ride than an actual investigation. Right. So getting people to go through the evidence after the fact was kind of hard. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah. early on, we started doing things to, to make sure our, our evidence was more validatable. And one of the things we did is, uh, instead of just having one person walking around asking questions into an audio recorder, we just wired everybody for sound. Mm -hmm. And we would, we, we would listen to, every, everybody would listen to their own recording and one person would synchronize the recordings, usually me, and uh, anything they heard that was unusual that they did not recall in the scene, I would sit there and see if it got picked up by other recorders. Uh, very often, uh, very uh, mundane sounds would come onto uh, an audio recorder sounding very peculiarly, but when you hear it from a different perspective, all of a sudden you understand that it was just, you know, something mundane. But right. very often we had things that weren't mundane, uh, uh, getting footsteps through a floor where we assumed somebody was up there until we went back and found out that uh, you have to literally stop on the floor to hear anything through it. 
you know, things like that. Uh, uh, we really check in depth, uh, establish that what we have, we can defend. And I think that was always the thing that sort of set us apart from other groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's you know it's funny because when I asked you what you wanted to be uh, referred to on the show, you said paranormal researcher. But it seems like just talking with you these past few minutes, you were more of a paranormal investigator. In the well, the investigation is part of the research. And how, first, the first thing you have to do is make sure there's a phenomena that you can bear, that that you can say this is real. You know, and how do you find out if, if it's real? Well, you know, you have to. Make sure you, you have quality isolation of evidence and investigation is part of that. Another big part of the research is uh, I've had a center in, uh, in Stratham, New Hampshire for 10 years where we would, we would invite people to speak on any paranormal subject they, you know, they, they could speak on. And they would come down and they'd give a, do presentations. And that was as much the research as anything else is steering all these unusual perspectives. You know, and I mean, I very, very politely let everybody say what they wanted and did not judge them in their presence. You know, now the center's closed. I have to go look back at all those claims and see which ones were valid. And, you know, the, the annoying part is many people believe truly bizarre things for good reasons that don't lead to the conclusions they drew. Right, which is really frustrating. A great example: uh, a Flat Earth Society. The people they keep offering all this evidence, and the evidence, if you look at it, is valid. It's true, and it, it, it has to be true for their claims to be true. But the fact that their evidence is accurate doesn't mean it's true. Classic example: uh, we talked about this a little bit on the phone. I don't want to get into it too much. That's but, okay. Uh, It'll be fine. Well, it's just. Uh, uh, it's one of those. Uh, it, it's uh, uh, one of those subjects that uh, tends to trigger people, and that's uh, how legitimate NASA is. Very famous for doing comp uh, comp uh, compilation photos, you know, and they they will post them as if that's an actual snapshot when it's not. So flat earthers recognize this and said these photos are impossible. They cannot possibly be happening. Therefore, NASA is a fraud. And NASA has to be fraud, a fraud for flat Earth to be true. Because I got to tell you, if you're on a space station, you know whether or not the Earth is flat. You know, so you know, so NASA has to be fraudulent for flat Earth to be possible. They found evidence that NASA creates frauds. I mean, and they admit to it. You know, they don't. It's not like they're hiding anything. You know, somebody calls about it, they'll say, "Well, well, yeah, we did a composite." So people would have an utter idea of what it would look like. But mm -hmm. the bottom line is we've got a space station that's 60 miles away. They're not seeing, you can never see the whole planet from the perspectives that they show pictures of it from. It right. happened. And then they say it's, oh, that came from a weather satellite. What the heck is a weather satellite doing on, you know, uh, two million miles away, way outside the, the orbit of the moon? to get the moon into a picture with the Earth. It can't happen, you know? These, these claims are just nuts. But then when you call their bluff, they say, well, we're doing that as an example. And like I say, is NASA alive? Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean the Earth is flat. 
Right. It's like anything else. Uh, if you have a theory, you take only the evidence that supports your theory and you ignore anything else that doesn't. Uh, that happens. Sure. Yes, that happens in most cases. Uh, right. And it happens a lot in paranormal investigating. Uh, you select what you have and and a lot of groups are just not open to any uh, other opinions than, than their own, which is oh. sad because it, the proper way to do it, which is done by the, the universities, especially in the UK, is that you put up your, your evidence for peer review. And uh, unfortunately, we don't allow that. Uh, you put it up on Facebook. If anybody makes a bad count, co uh, comment on it, you get blocked or you get uh, defriended. So there you go. It sort of puts me in a rough position because, like I say, I'm trying to filter the fields down to more manageable truths than just the chaos that we have in here. You know. Uh, uh, I mean, and I'm not just talking the paranormal. We're talking, you know, uh, there's issues with with uh, uh, Bigfoot. There's issues with uh, UFOs. Uh, I, you know, there's issues with the internet is what the problem is. Well, yeah, yeah, and then you alluded to it already. But uh, people develop emotional attachments to their belief system. And by the way, if you want to become famous on the internet. Telling people stuff they already know isn't what works. You have to tell them something new. So, and it's usually the new stuff, the extra stuff, that's the nonsense. But that's what gets your attention. So you have to keep elaborating on the garbage rather than on the good. Now, if people sit there and looked at science from an objective point of view with their emotions detached, they would realize, you know, it's you know, because there's a remarkable, a remarkably large amount of evidence. Uh, um, I mean, the stuff all coalesces in a sensible pattern, but the pattern, there's nothing exciting going on, you know? Mm -hmm. Although I will say that there are some things, uh, uh, there's some things that science agrees on that are not necessarily true. And uh, I don't want to like get into COVID conspiracies, but we knew very, very early, we knew before the mask mandate that the mask didn't work, that research had already been done. And Fauci actually came out and said, no, 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 masking won't work. But he changed his mind before there were any further research was done on it. We knew that the if you want to get 5% effectiveness masking against the virus, uh, you had to use, it's called an N95 mask, which is an OSHA standard that's not designed to stop moisture at all. So, you know, it doesn't stop your breath. It only stops, it stops 95% of dry particulate matter. It's a dust mask. But it will still uh, stop 5% of the moisture from your breath, which is where the virus was. So the best mask we had, without going into full rebreathers, is you know five percent effective, and we knew that. And by the way, virtually none of the masks anybody wore throughout all of COVID actually were as effective as an N95. Most people were using uh, uh, medical surgical masks that didn't have any standards at all. So we have no idea if they were effective at all because they were for looks, not for effectiveness. I mean, yeah, it, it drove me crazy and. Uh, 
Uh, I mean, I was teaching through all that, and uh, the problem is when you have the CDC telling you, here's your recommendations, uh, nobody is going to go against those recommendations because if you go against recommendations and you're wrong, everybody can sue you. So you go against, you go with the recommendations, no matter how absurd they are. The question right. for me was always, well, why the CDC knew all the information? Why did they create a mask mandate? And I mean, the only thing I can think of is for psychological reasons. You can't sue the government, by the way. It gives it gives uh, it gives people the ability to take active participation in their health. Nobody wants to feel helpless. And by creating the mask mandate, you're giving creating the illusion it's uh, the health body by stage show rather than by science. Okay, so you moving know? on from the, the masks mandate, the the, the, the paranormal uh, back to the paranormal groups. Sure. There, the problem with the, the paranormal uh, is, is that we want to uh, have, we have people who believe what they believe, sure. but we also have the best evidence uh, of the paranormal are the eyewitness accounts. So you have a uh, quandary there, a quandary, uh, it's almost ironic actually that the best evidence is actually the worst evidence. So it, it it's difficult. Uh, everything else that we collect is peripheral. It's it's really not the experience itself, which is what the paranormal is. So well, there is good evidence out there, but it's generally rejected by the scientific community at large. Um, there was a, that. well, there, uh, Harry Price was a British investigator. Uh, SPR, Society for Psychical Research, uh, did in, uh, I can't remember the name of the chapel, but he investigated the place for, for years. Right. And amassed a huge amount actually, of evidence. Actually, he did investigate the place. He, he hired uh, people from all walks of life to live there sure. for one year. And you, and you talk about Bowley Rectory. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Bowley Rectory. There we go. Yeah. Um, yes, but it, it's, uh, no scientist sits in a place by himself for a year. So obviously, yes, he has to hire people to do it and train to uh, basic uh, to do basic observations, which, by the way, is the first and foremost part of research when you are doing events that you cannot control. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like uh, you can't watch lions living amongst lions by throwing them in a cage. You have to observe their environment from afar. And this is the, the best and the only way to do that sometimes is to just put people in situ and let them record what they record and look for right. patterns. He actually so, wrote the blue book, which is the first paranormal investigation book on how to investigate the paranormal. He, he That was the Bible for all his members of his team to do that. Yes. Uh, so I don't know if he was necessarily the first, because uh, the, the guy who, uh, I want to say it's 1400, uh, uh, the drummer, who was the drummer boy? Tidwell Drummer Boy or something yeah, like Tidwell that? Yeah, Tidwell Drummer, yeah. So, but yeah, he sort of created, uh, uh, he reported his own patterns of investigation, mm -hmm. not necessarily a recommendation for other people to do it, which, I mean, again, it's that's the foundation of good science, uh, show people a uh, 
replicatable method to do it on their own and see if they come up with the same results. Right. I mean, that's that's what it is, you know? Unfortunately, so, uh, we, we, many investigators don't do that uh, nowadays. For instance, we have this tendency, and, and this is, you can blame most of the TV shows for this, is that uh, when they go to investigate, they, of course, uh, turn off all the lights, which is the most ridiculous thing since most of the sightings oh, 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 are seen in broad daylight. Okay, so there's some truth to what you're saying, but the simple fact is that uh, vision is a, a contrast system. So you are much more likely to see subtle changes in lighting if the lights are dim than if the lights are bright. So you are more aware of your visual situation in but low light not, situations. But you're not repeating the original incident over again. You're looking for something totally different. That's assuming that these people, the, uh, I mean, it's one thing if you're investigating a bars. Well, no, I've been to bars where the, the best evidence is People who are closing up at night. You know, they don't have, and at first, the bar is not exactly a well-lit place to begin with. But people's right. houses, certainly people uh, uh, record, they, re they report more uh, incidents occurring at bedtime while they're, you know, I mean, you can attribute it to like uh, uh, the various uh, things that happen when you get in and out of sleep. But uh, you are actually more sensitive. At night, you are more sensitive to uh, variations in audio because there's less ambient noise to compete with what you're hearing. And it's the same as true visually. Uh, like I say, visual uh, light is, uh, humans are not luminance sensitive. We are contrast sensitive. So when you're you are comparing- You're gonna have to hold that thought for a minute because we have to take a break right now. Sure. You're listening to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Ron Kolick and our special guest is Andy Kitt. And we are brought to you by Circles of Wisdom, 286 Memorack Street, Bethune, Massachusetts, the Glant Messier Family Law Group, 15 High Street, nothing over in Massachusetts. Now, very good friends of Ghost Chronicles Radio on Patreon. You too can become a member for a mere $3 a month and have access to over 50 videos. We'll be right back after the following messages. Do you have a paranormal event, book, or something else you want people to know about? Then why not advertise it on Ghost Chronicles Radio? With over 150,000 downloads a month, get your message out to an audience that's interested in the subject. We have a plan at a cost that fits your needs. For more information, contact Ron Kolick at anyghostproject at comcast.net or call 978-455-6678. Hello. Hello, can you hear me? My name is Harry Price. I am speaking to you via the medium of the Ghost Box. Many of you will know I carried out the first live radio broadcast from Haunted House way back in 1936 for the BBC. Now, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, I am still able to keep abreast of 21st century ghost hunting by listening to Ghost Chronicles International on Togginet, Para-X Radio, The Ghost Channel, and even on something called a podcast. Two splendid chaps host it. One is an American who calls himself New England's own Van Helsing. Although I have discovered his real name is Ron Kolek. 
The other is Stephen Parsons, and he's a paranormal scientist. Well, Mustache, I'm required elsewhere on something called a K2. But don't forget, I'll be listening in every Tuesday from 8 o'clock in Great Britain and 3 o'clock on the American Eastern Seaboard. I trust you will join me there. And welcome back. Bringing us back, of course, is the music from Van Helsing. Uh, we are speaking with paranormal researcher Andy Kitt. And we were, just before the break, we were talking about uh, ghost hunting and, and different methods. And, and everybody has their own methods. Or... Sure. I, I just want to stipulate there's, it's, I'm not advocating against investigating during the day. I, I, during, in light, I'm saying you really need to investigate both. Okay. You know, because the bottom line is you are absolutely right when you say that the conditions are different. Your ability to observe are different. Everything about it. So to do one and not the other is is a huge disservice to the, your range of possible events. But, I mean, we're hampered anyhow uh, just in the fact that we generally uh, we have access to places for such a short amount of time. Uh, Harry Price, how many years was he in Borley Rectory, you know? I mean, you want to investigate, you have to do this on an ongoing basis. And uh, another thing, I mean, to call something good science, you have to compare uh, your events or your claims to what a normal situation is. And as far as I know, nobody has ever done that. You know, I mean, everybody's saying, well, weird. Well, how weird is it? No, what's, what's weird? What's I mean, I'm I'm not sure. Maybe I misunderstood what you say. But are you saying that you nobody takes baselines? Exactly. There's there's no obvious baseline. I mean, even in the the research, uh, uh, the medium research, they did baselines on what a person is likely to come up with, uh, uh, just making random guesses. And uh, wow, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but. Uh, uh, for 20 years now, uh, uh, Winbridge Institute, uh, University of Arizona in Phoenix have been researching mediums, and uh, they found out, oh my gosh, uh, the best of the best. They came up with a list of 24 names, tested them. On average, they are 10 times more likely than random at coming up with verifiable, accurate information. The problem is they're actually, they are still, even though they are 10 times more likely to be right than guessing, they are still twice as likely to be wrong than right. Mm -hmm. So basically, that's essentially a 3% chance to guess things based on context, 30% chance of getting the information right, but that still means are 60% of the time you're wrong. So work? Yeah, but if you want to work with a medium, uh, taking their word for it doesn't move you forward. You almost, in fact, this is one of the things that we did do, is we investigated, uh, I mean, to not investigate with a medium is insane, because as far as we know, that's the only thing that can actually detect ghosts. We know 30% of the time they're getting information, you know? So what you do is you just 
have multiple mediums go through a place with no foreknowledge of the place and no knowledge of what the other mediums are saying. And, you know, you get four guys going through, and each one of them agrees that there's a dead lady hiding in a giving closet. Well, you have something to say, because you can compare it to the kitchen where one person says there's a, a dead dog, and another person says there's a dead... You know, you can see where they disagree, and then see where they do agree, and then you can safely say something is going on in the place where they did agree. But the key is they can't have any advanced knowledge and have no way of knowing what the other people said. But the, I mean, only, the, only, the only problem with information given to anyone by a medium is that we don't know where the information is obtained from. Uh, they sure. believe, for instance, that the, it comes from a dead person, but we have absolutely no proof or evidence that this information is actually coming from a dead person. It could be coming from somebody's mind, could be coming from some type of recording, could be coming from a greater consciousness. There is a variety of other methods, to, uh, uh, sources for this uh, information to be attained. But they sure, can but obtain are, certain information, yes. But there, there are uh, individual cases where the information came from, I mean, the claim was the information came from a bunch of dead monks. Uh, and in fact, nobody knew, nobody alive knew the right answer. And they were able to verify it in situ. Uh, um, it was the during the uh, excavation of an abbey in Britain. Um, mm -hmm. uh, just one of the guys sat there and he got in touch with the medium. The medium said, dig here. They dug there and there it was. You know, They were looking for a, a king's chapel or whatever it was. I don't remember the details. Uh, I didn't exactly study you know, to, to come up with spe specific topics here, but... Uh, uh, during this excavation, they did, in fact, uh, find the walls of the chapel based on the input from a medium. Right. There's also archaeology uh, done in the, uh, the Middle East and uh, uh, the ability to match broken pieces through mediumship uh, was established. And clearly that, I mean, is there a larger mental picture they are somehow tapping into? That remains possible, but there's no evidence and no reason to believe that that is true, where the idea of a surviving psyche isn't so impossible, especially when you have uh, so much evidence for reincarnation. Uh, the problem with what makes reincarnation evidence so satisfying is the moment you say that the soul doesn't originate with the body for anybody means the soul doesn't originate for the body for everybody means the soul pre-exists the body. That means the soul exists. And can, mm -hmm. the moment you establish it can communicate, and it is clearly passing on information through reincarnation, so the ability, the process is there. Can we once prove again, it? Well, once, we can't prove that the speed of light is constant, you know? So Once, once again, the, the information obtained in reincarnation is not necessarily that for me person that was born again into the same body, they may be tapping to a greater consciousness, or they may be actually possessed by a, a soul, for a uh, spirit from another thing. There are, there are a whole variety of other explanations other than strictly the soul being reincarnated into another body. Yes, but you, uh, as scientists, we are required to, to eliminate the obvious first. And the simplest explanation, it really is that it's the people, you know? 
to that's, say that there's some sort of larger, you know, uh, possession thing actually doesn't take away from the idea of a soul. It only takes away the idea of reincarnation. But you are, in fact, I'm not talking away. I'm not talking about soul. I'm strictly talking reincarnation here. Right. But I mean, you can use your argument to argue against reincarnation, but not that the idea is that the information is individualized. And there's also situations where uh, uh, information was partially validated. Uh, Shanti Devi is a really, really famous. it's one of Ian Stevenson's first uh, reincarnation investigations, but uh, the uh, the reincarnation was a little girl uh, who claimed she came from a uh, she was a mother who died during childbirth and was able to when brought in front of the family whose uh, mother died in childbirth was able to identify by name all of the kids except for the one who killed her, and you know they just. The limitations are very suggestive of it's that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's the that... interesting thing about the paranormal is, Andrew, is you have so many opinions and you have so many good uh, arguments for each of those opinions. It, it makes it difficult to, uh, you know, other than discuss it, that's about what you can do. Because uh, if, if someone has an opinion, which you you brought up before, they're not willing to change it, uh, even though you might have evidence against it. They may hate evidence before it, and therefore it, it never gets changed. It's just uh, the two camps. Unless, of course, we're in a woke generation, and then you get bullied into uh, changing your opinion, of course. Ah, ah. Oh, yeah, I'm so not going to touch that topic with a stick. I worked at, worked at a university, dude. I'd get in trouble. Yes, you could. Anyways, uh, I, I did want to talk to you, and we say, oh, wow, we're going okay time-wise. Uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, because you, you study a variety of, uh, of different topics, right? Yes. Besides ghosts. Uh, you, you mentioned the hollow earth, which is an, an intriguing topic in itself. Not too many people know about the hollow earth theory. You, you want to talk a little bit about that, or you, you prefer not to? It's up to you. Uh, actually, you know, I mean, as long as, you know, no fellow academicians are, are, you know, none of my UNH compadres are floating around listening to this, I'm probably okay. But let me offer the caveat. I am not saying it's true. I am saying most people are not aware that there is very good evidence in favor of it. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, you know, and, I'm uh, curious about it. Yeah. I'd like well, to the most compelling evidence is actually that uh, earthquakes uh, uh, are very common at the surface mm-hmm. of the planet, and they tend to diminish uh, in frequency as you go deeper and deeper and deeper until you get down to about 400 miles below the surface of the planet. By the way, at 400 miles, according to current theory, that should all be plasticized rock down there. There should be no earthquakes at the 400, uh, 400 mile level should be zero. It should be zero at half that distance. And yet, okay, so 400 miles, it, it, it approaches zero. But then as you keep going deeper and deeper, uh, the number starts to increase again until you peak at about 800 miles. I can't remember the actual number. It's somewhere between 750 and 800 miles in. And uh, that shouldn't happen. And when, if you ask a seismologist about it, 
still say that that's all uh, uh, land that got uh, subducted, got pushed underneath another plate. Well, how far under the plate does that have to go before it gets absorbed into the liquid that's inside the planet? You know, they're just the logic behind their own arguments doesn't hold up. Uh, but it is a fact that uh, earthquakes at the 800 mile mark shouldn't be happening at all. Okay. And yet they are common there. Yeah. Are you familiar with the uh, Hollow Earth Society that was in uh, Florida, the community? No, I'm not. Yeah, they, they, there's a whole community that uh, grew up in, uh, I think, I believe the town's still there, although there aren't any more people left in it. Uh, but they they were they based their whole lifestyle on the hollow earth and uh, they they actually had a uh, a uh, globe with the, the hollow earth in it and, and uh, yeah it's uh, it's interesting check that out on the uh, sometime I can't tell remember the details because I'm not a detailed person but yeah uh, one of the one of the problems with groups like that is uh, if it's online I probably have encountered it but my filter system is actually pretty fast. And when you see something absurd, I will sit there, look through data point, data point, data point, data point. And if, you know, if they they have to say something new for me to stop, mm-hmm. and that new thing they say has to have value to science. Right. And if it's not there, I reject it and just go on to the next one. Oh, okay. It's, it's an interesting thing because they did exist. It was society. It was a great number of people. Uh, they they did manufacturing there, and uh, I, I believe that the, the village is still there. Maybe even a landmark now, uh, but it's I believe it's in Florida. Look up Hollow Earth Society, Florida. I believe you probably would find it. It's, I'm still it going to have to Google that, though. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an intriguing story. Uh, but anyways, there's also you know the report of uh, it was an admiral bird that supposedly flew into the hollow earth. Are you familiar with that? I'm very familiar with the claim, but the claim's not really that substantial. There's a lot more interesting bits. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm certainly more interested. Well, one of the problems is that uh, we know for sure uh, he was involved in a uh, uh, military excursion, claimed to be a mapping excursion, to Antarctica. Mm-hmm. You know, we went down there with a freaking task force, a military task force to map Antarctica. And, uh, you know, we came back with casualties. And it's like, huh, that's kind of interesting. But uh, you can actually go online and just give uh, listen to the interview of him describing what the things he encountered. He is very, he's very indirect at saying a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You know that what he saw was more involved than it was a mapping mission. But the problem with the trip over the North Pole, the one where he allegedly went in, is first, the evidence is really sketchy that the trip ever even took place. And it would have been literally within a year of him doing this mission to the South Pole that we know he did. And he yep. didn't just like leave, you know, I mean, there's travel time and setup time. And it's like, no. It's really the the evidence that the North Pole trip ever took place is sketchy at best. But the South Pole trip was certainly interesting in its own right. Yeah. And the fact that we still have really bizarre things going on in the South Pole. Uh, oh, it was a couple of years ago. All of a sudden, uh, a whole bunch of world leaders just started taking 
trips to the South Pole for no known reason, you know? Prince Charles went to South Pole to hang out. Nobody knows why. Just And he wasn't the only one. There's a number of, of dignitaries who went to the South Pole in and around. I, I believe Prince South Charles South. was involved uh, and they had a wounded warrior uh, excursion uh, they, it was a oh uh, I, I'm not sure it was like at the Cathlon or something that they did into the North Pole and he he did fly down there for that I do know that occurred. Now, does that make a whole lot of sense? Why he went there? To you personally? He was very big with the the, the military, especially the the uh, the wounded. Why did he go to the South Pole? That's where the the exercises were being held. Or the race, whatever it was, I can't remember the exact details of it. But uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, according to the flat earthers, the South Pole is, is of course, run by the governments uh, and the men in black, and no one's allowed uh, going there. Did you say flat earther or hollow earther? One of the big problems with hollow earth is it gets it gets conflated with flat earth a lot. And uh, flat, earth, flat, earth, flat earth, I said on that one. Yeah, that one. That one's. The flat earth doesn't hold up. You know, I mean, very simple things you can do. Uh, you can just, it, yeah, it's just logically it doesn't hold up. Just knowing that sometimes the sun never goes down in Alaska sort of invalidates the possibility of the flat earth. The moment you try to draw a map of an earth where it's possible for sometimes uh, Alaska, the sun never goes down and sometimes the sun never rises. And you can't have both in a flat Earth model. Can't have right. it. Right. You, know, you spend all day, and I personally, I lived there. I saw both. You know. Oh, that's and cool. There, there are days where you just sit there. You know, they don't have Fourth of July fireworks because the sun doesn't go down. You know. <laughs> that's funny. You know, and, uh, uh, you come up on Christmas time. Well, there's a week there where the sun is just below the horizon, but never actually peaks out. You know, and that's an anchorage. That's not even up north where they get weeks of no sun you know right so like i say there's no there's no theoretical model flat or theoretical model that can accommodate that the very real experiences of Alaskans. Right. they did so, a they did a great uh special i believe it was on netflix on the flat earth and, and it was it was intriguing uh you know i i'm not i don't believe it's flat earth but i, I i've been dying to get someone on to discuss it uh steve and i have on the, on the international show but uh nobody will step forward for it but that's besides the point anyways back to the hollow earth so yes what evidence i mean what evidence other than the earthquakes is there that the the earth is hollow well one of the presumptions uh just the way we measure uh the mass of all the planets in the solar system uh is based on an assumption that the earth isn't hollow uh, and just seismic evidence from the moon suggests very strongly that that's hollow. Hmm. And, you know, they, they uh, crashed a, a satellite into it just to develop seismic data. And the thing essentially echoed for hours as if it was a hollow object, which is very, very, very hard to explain in, in terms of a solid object. So if the moon is hollow, so are we. By the way, uh, the evidence that Jupiter and Saturn 
are really, really big balls of gas is relatively weak. They're called gas giants because it's the only way to explain the fact that Saturn is is so not dense that if you dropped it in an ocean, it would float. It is less dense than water. That's a planet. You know, it's like, no, that doesn't even kind of make sense, especially not when you can see debris blowing out of the thing when asteroids crash into it. Right. So, you know, I mean, the, the evidence, looking at other planets, it, it indicates what the composition of ours is. And uh, there's other things that uh, are at the very least suggestive. Uh, uh, one of them is the fact that our planet slows down. And it's very hard to, uh, uh, to consider why that would happen because we're essentially in a frictionless uh uh, frictionless air atmosphere, you know, where there's nothing to slow us down. Um, but it could be true if the Earth is expanding. And a solid Earth expanding is very hard to explain. But a hollow Earth expanding is not, uh, especially when we are very aware that uh, plates on the surface of the Earth tend to shift relative to each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I say, we don't, the evidence of uh, of subduction is very, very weak, but the evidence that the plates move isn't. And again, the, the, the hollow Earth can explain tectonics better than the current theories of tectonics. But we, you know, we we just we talk about the 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 uh, classical uh, Earth, and and we have the crust, which is of course basically the peel of an orange. So. And, and in reality, the, the Earth would be hollow from the, the classical point of view. Hollow meaning that it's it's uh, uh, has a crust and it, it can peel that away, and there's there's material underneath it, whether it's uh, lava. I mean, uh, not lava, uh, magna, or uh, you know, even they're talking about what a high density core, I believe, as well uh, in the in the classical. Right. Which are all things that should be non-compressible. Mm -hmm. Liquids can't be compressed. Mm -hmm. so Liquid can't they, be compressed. That's the theories that I have. But by the way, uh, they, they've also established that if the planet uh, was formed as a liquid, um, there's experimentations where they suspended a ball of, uh, of viscous, whatever it is, uh, some type of gel, embedded with uh, air particles and uh, less and more dense particles, and all of the less dense particles migrated to the center while the more dense particles migrated to the outside. So the science behind, you know, if the Earth was created as a relatively homogeneous liquid ball, all of the gases that were freed up would have gone to the inside. And we know this through experimentation. You know, so, but the problem is we have no theory of planetary creation that actually works. You know, I mean, they keep talking about things like the accretion model and whatnot, when in fact there's absolutely no way to make that actually work in a practical sense. You know, the amount of material that would have to hit each other and stay together uh, to, to have gravitational forces liquefy the thing is just completely untenable. So it's far more likely that we were ejected from the sun 
that we were a bunch of just space debris gathered together by accident. And the ejection from the sun model doesn't work very well either. So, but yeah, the, yeah, it it's so. If the Earth is hollow, what differences does it make? Well, first off, um, well, it depends how weird you want to go. Uh, the bottom line is, uh, if there is, uh, you have to think that inside the Earth is relatively uniform temperature. Uh, there's no space for heat to radiate off into. Uh, whatever heat is generated generally stays in there. Uh, and honestly, uh, uh, looking at things like the great uh, dinosaur wipeout, uh, uh, it's invulnerable to asteroid damage. It's invulnerable to a lot of things. If it is possible to generate light down there, which is not impossible, uh, I mean, can't uh, actually go there, but it's very, it's very possible that uh, there are societies there, which is one of the things people postulate routinely. But uh, honestly, before people talk about uh, uh, aliens from space, somebody needs to establish that they're not here and they're just more developed than we are. You know, I mean, that, that remains a possibility. Uh, but what difference would it make? I don't know. Let's find out. Uh, what difference does it make when we tell people that we're a big ball of magma? You know, I mean, the bottom line is which one is true? You don't know what difference it makes until you find out which one is true. Okay, fair enough. And having, the, having better models, uh, uh, more accurate models, more verifiable models, only makes extensions to any science uh, more viable. So... Indeed. With that note, we're going to have to. By the way, the the place to uh, look at is the K O R E S H A N Korshan State Historic Site in Estero, Florida, and it was the uh, settlement of the Korshan Unity Settlement, and, and that's the Hall of Oasis Society. So, uh, if you want to Are check that selected? out, that's where it is. Uh, the, the town's still there. No, the settlements, uh, the people that go on the town still there. Uh, so we do have to wrap it up. Andy, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. If people want to find out more about you, you, how can they do that? You know, right now, I don't think they can. I'm trying to wrap up a degree at UNH. And uh, once that's done, I will be making myself more visible. Maybe I'll give okay. you a call then and see if you want me to want to throw me back on and see where I am directing my 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 work uh once i have the degree but uh, right now like i said i don't know uh, uh i'm still in the observation stage i'm not actively researching anything but i do still go out there and observe and try different methods when i do investigating okay well thank you so much for being on the show you've been listening to ghost chronicles next generation with ron our special guest has been andy kitt uh, we are brought to you by Circles of Wisdom, 286 Merrimack Street, Bethune, Massachusetts, the Glance, your family law group, 15 High Street, North Endover, Massachusetts, and our very good friends of Ghost Chronicles Radio and Patreon. Become a member and uh, see you next week. Good night, everyone. And God bless. All right. Thank you.
from goalies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord. 